I'm, uh, I'm curious, uh, anyone here read the, uh, the book of Esther in the past year or so? All right, a couple of you. Um, it's a fantastic book. Some of you here, I'm sure, have, have never even read it at all, and it's this incredible book that I'm going to share with you today. It's a story that you're going to find in Jesus' Bible. That's, that's what we call the Old Testament. It's a story that, that talks about a time when the Jews found themselves in exile. A few weeks ago, we shared that there's this date in Old Testament history, 587 BC, when everything changed. This was a pivot mark, a defining moment where everything that Israel had come to depend on had been stripped away, and everything for them changed. Esther is a book that gives us just a glimpse of what some of that change looked like, what it was like for them living in exile. And guys, what I'm going to do today is is I just want to share that story with you. Because sometimes you just need to hear it in its own words, right? And and sometimes we can talk so much about something that we actually have to get into that actual something to hear their voices, their feelings, their struggles. And my hope is that by doing this, you're going to see a whole lot of point of contact with life with us today. So, Let's begin with the book of Esther, chapter 1. Here's what it says. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over the 127 provinces of what we would call Persia, stretching from India to Cush. All right, who is Xerxes? Um, This is Xerxes, all right? Um. Who saw 300? Okay, I don't know if I'm more disturbed that you haven't read Esther or that you haven't seen 300, all right? Um, but if you have, it's, it's the same Xerxes. This is the Xerxes we're talking about. Get a load of this guy. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel, the castle of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. He threw a 180-day party. That is some party. When these days were over, he didn't have enough. The king gave another banquet, lasting seven days in the enclosed garden, because you always have to have the after party after the party, right? So he gives it in the king's palace for all the peoples from the least to the greatest who were living with him there in the citadel of Susa. Now it was opulent. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and of silver, which just doesn't sound comfortable to me. And on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed uh, all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. So we like him already. 
Now Queen Vashti's queen also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of Xerxes. And on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from the wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, and some traditions would say wearing only her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Imagine that. Then the king became furious. Yeah. He burned with anger. Now, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. The seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. Now, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed me. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. So one of them replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong. Not only against the king, but also against the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all women. And they will despise their husbands and say, Well, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought to him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. And guys, we know we just can't have that, right? Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. And let it be written in the law of the Persia and media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give another royal position, or give her royal position to someone else who is better. Someone who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with the advice. So they did as was proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own Household. Now, have you ever had a moment where something struck you as a really good idea in the time? Later, when the, king, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided and the wine started to wear off, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Comes to his senses. But the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem 
at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let, them, uh, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. Let's come up for air right here. We come to this place in the story of seeing what the world empires are like. We're seeing mighty Persia under King Xerxes, opulent with wealth and power, and it's literally getting drunk on it more than one way, <laughs> you know, more than one way. Um, and there's this Jew, his name, is, his, his name is Mordecai. And he finds himself plunged into the midst of it. Not by choice, not by will. Carried off in, in human trafficking, really. Living in exile under a king, well, a king like this. See, for us, I think the story of the exile, that's a history lesson, isn't it? We walk away on Sunday, okay, that, that's interesting. I, I understand the Bible a little bit better. But for them, it was reality. For us, it's history, but for them, this was day-to-day life. This is what they lived with. This is what they suffered under. Think about what it would be like to be taken out of your homeland, watching it burn before your eyes. Everything you hoped in and found meaning in, stripped away, burned down, sent away, put under the rule of a guy like this. Now go with it. Imagine what it would be like. Well, let me keep reading. Let me keep reading. And this is what it says. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. Now that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? To be lovely in form and features. But hear it in the context of story, because what happens to young girls in Persia who are lovely in form and features? They're trafficked. They're trafficked to a guy like this. I try to climb inside the the mind of what it must have been like for the Jews living in exile and what it must have been like for Esther. Living in this place of complete powerlessness, you are just at the complete mercy and will of people like this. And if they want you, they take you. I imagine what it would have to be for a girl like Esther. I have daughters of my own. I think of my eight-year-old, and I think of how little girls dream of weddings someday, right? 
They dream of that, 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 that fairy tale kind of thing. And let's face it, when we get older, the dreams don't really go away, do they? Maybe we bury them down, but who doesn't dream of being loved someday? Of having someone in their life that just sees them and is just enraptured with them, just taken by them, to whom they mean everything. And then I try to get in the head of a girl like that and imagine her being trafficked to a guy like this in his harem. His plaything, his toy. Imagine dreams crushed. Guys, this is a picture of what exile was like. Now, the story goes on. See what happens. It says this. It says, she was brought to the citadel along with many other girls and was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hege, who had uh, charge of the harem. Esther pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Now catch this next verse. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Esther did not let on who she was. Because when you live in exile, it is so much easier to fly under the radar, isn't it? When you stand in a minority, when you stand among a group of people with a very peculiar belief and way of living and sense of what is right and wrong and how God is active in this universe and everything else, and you find yourself thrust into a larger world where you don't have the power, isn't it so much easier to just hide it? To hide who you are, or or let's downplay it, right? You just kind of downplay it. You downplay it, and and I'm not going to make a stink. I'm not going to stick out. I'm just going to try to blend in, even if that means kind of shaving the edges, even if that means just kind of being unobtrusive, even if that means I'm not being true to me, to who I am, to what I believe. Esther had not revealed it. Because when you live as a Jew in exile, and you stand out so weirdly and so differently from the rest, it is so much easier to just hide and blend in. Now, it says that every day, Mordecai walked back and forth near the the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther uh, was doing and what had happened to her. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete a 12-month prescription, beauty school, basically. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her uh, from the harem to take to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem, uh, to the care of another attendant, another of the king's eunuchs, 
who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. What is it like to have hopes, to have dreams? The king calls you, the king uses you to be cast off. For how long? Until he cares to be bothered by you again. Days? Weeks? In an era of thousands of concubines, years? If ever? What is it like to be a young girl with hopes and dreams? And promises of goodness and ideas of God and to be used by a guy like Xerxes to then be cast off to a life of destitution. Or who knows, maybe worse, to be used over and over and over again. Now, when the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what um, Hege, the, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet. Esther's banquet for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with, loyal liber- with royal liberality. Now, when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do, even as queen. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's table, Bigthana and Teresh, these are two of the king's officers, who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to, ex- to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows, and all this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Now after these events, King Xerxes honored another. His name was Haman, the son of Hamedath, whatever his name was, the the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. Now check this out. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded them concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. You know, it never actually says why. 
Why, after flying under the radar this long, would it change now? It never says why, but why, after all this time, even Mordecai telling Esther, don't, don't let him know, don't let it out, go with the flow, there comes a time, there comes a place when he simply would not do it anymore. I don't know, maybe it was personal. I mean, maybe, maybe just, I hate that guy. Anything else but him, no way. Maybe it was personal. Maybe they had history. Maybe there was something there. Or maybe it was something more than that. Maybe there just comes a time comes a time in in everyone's life that if they have any sense of integrity at all, that you just can't continue to live that way. Maybe it just came to a time for him where he's like, if I am going to be true to myself and what I believe in any way, I just can't do it anymore. Because when I bow down and pay honor, it is so much more than just bending a knee. Maybe Mordecai came to realize it's bending a soul, bending a will, submitting, submitting to something at some fundamental level that you just don't agree with. Submitting to something at some fundamental level, you go, this just is not right and I can't be a part of it anymore. See guys, it is so easy, isn't it? To fly under the radar. To not stick out. To go with the flow. It's interesting that the New Testament will talk about us as believers, as people in exile. It'll use the same language, the same metaphor, the same terms. It'll talk about us as a people living in exile, a people who are are sojourning, who are wandering. Have you ever felt this way? Stranger in a strange land. People who in some way just don't belong with the prevailing trends and the prevailing currents of what life in this world is like. We feel different. Because as followers of Jesus, we are. Or at least should be. And a lot like these Jews in exile, I think we find ourselves thrust into a world, thrust into a situation, environments, culture, and everything else where the prevailing wisdom and the powers that be are not only different but often antagonistic. And isn't it so easy in those places and those times to just not stick out? Just go with it and roll with it, even if it means hiding Jesus, even if it means hiding my faith, even if it means Shave in the corners of what I believe. You know, I've come to find, there's no getting around this one, guys. I I wish there was. 
I've come to find that as a believer, this time comes for each and every one of us. There's going to come a time in your life, and it's going to come more often than once, where you're going to sit there before a situation, and you're just going to be like, I just can't hide anymore. I just can't bow the knee anymore, and this is going to be a crisis for you. It's going to be a crisis, a crossroads, a decision. Do I continue to hide what I'm about? Or do I cast my lot in with Christ? Do I, do I put my loyalty with him? Do I let the words be, no, no, Jesus is Lord, and take my stand with him? Because, guys, we live in exile. And I promise you, that that day will come. And what the story of Esther is going to go on to reveal is that when that day comes, your choice will cost you. No getting around this. Jesus himself says, count the cost. It will cost you. And it's not just going to cost you, it's going to cost others around Listen to what happened. The royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, what are you doing? Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply because when you stick out in exile in this world, the world will come back in a number of ways. It'll try to bribe you. It'll try to convince you. It'll try to win you over. And when that doesn't work, it'll try to threaten you. It'll try to scare you. It'll try to make you bow in submission. And when that doesn't work, it'll try to compromise with you. It'll try to come to you and say, let's just be reasonable about this and find a middle ground. And day after day, they came at him. They came at him. but he refused to comply. So they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. Now we've learned something from Vashti in this, haven't we? Will this be tolerated? For he told him that Mordecai was a Jew. Now when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing Mordecai alone. No, no, no. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Mordecai makes a choice, and there was a cost. And that cost was Holocaust, genocide, the reality of living as an exile in this world is that it will cost you. And suffering in difficulty is all but assured. So it says that in the 12th year of King Xerxes, in the first month, they started putting this into action. 
Haman said to Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces whose customs are different, whose customs are weird, whose customs are offensive, whose customs cannot be tolerated. From those of all the other peoples and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will put down the money for it, 10,000 talents of silver, into the royal treasury so it can be carried out. So on the 13th day of the first month, the secretaries gathered. They wrote out the script of each province and in the language of each people, all uh, Haman's orders to the kings, satraps, and governors, and rulers throughout the land. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent with couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, and to plunder their goods. Copies of the edict were issued as a law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they could prep for it. Spurred on by the king's commands, the couriers went out. The edict was issued in the citadel of Susa, and Xerxes and Haman sat down to drink while their kingdom stood bewildered, astonished, and stunned. Welcome to exile. Now, the story goes on. It says in chapter 4, When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ash and went out into the city. Have you ever done what was right and been filled with crushing guilt after the effect because of what occurred? He went out wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed that way was allowed to enter. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was in distress. She sent clothes for him to put on, but but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned um, Hathach, one, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathach went out to, to Mordecai in the open square of the city, in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. It sounds like the natural recourse, doesn't it? Here's the problem. Hathach went back and reported to Esther, and she instructed him to say to Mordecai, wait a minute. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. 
The only exception to this is for the king to extend the golden scepter, extend it to him and spare his life. 30 days have gone by since I was called to go to the king. You hear what Esther is saying? I go to the king, I'm a dead man. I mean, I know I'm a woman, but I'm a dead man. What are you doing at a time like that? What does Esther do? Now, now, now listen close. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he answered. He sent back this answer. Esther, don't think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Don't think because you've got privilege and prosperity now that you're immune. Don't think that you're not in exile anymore. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. It's insane faith, isn't it? But you and your father's family will perish. And keen on the last line, and who knows? And who knows? Mordecai says, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Now, up until this point, we're reading the story of Esther and and what her people in exile are facing. And we're meeting all kinds of characters with all kinds of names, Xerxes and Vashti. We're meeting all of these eunuchs and their names. We're meeting the people who, who tend to the concubines. We're meeting Haman and Mordecai. We're meeting Esther herself. But have you noticed that there is one name conspicuously missing in the story so far? See, if you've been listening closely, you may have noticed that there is a character here who doesn't seem to be in play. There is a character here who has been conspicuously left unmentioned. You know who it is? God. Have you heard God come up once in this yet? I mean, we're reading the Bible here, right? Isn't this fundamentally a story about God? And yet God's name has not yet been mentioned even once. And I'm going to break it to you. And it isn't mentioned for the rest of the story. In fact, the book of Esther stands unique among all the books of the Bible and that it never explicitly mentions God. Not one time. I got to try to imagine what it was like for Mordecai. Holding on like this, holding on in faith. See, as Mordecai lived in the exile... He didn't lose something. He didn't lose his faith. He hid from it. He denied it. He shaved the edges off of it a time to be sure. But as he found himself thrust in the middle of this, he knew that there was something deeper going on, something transcendent. Because what Esther is fundamentally about is what life is like in the exile. And what life is often like in the exile? 
is God working behind the scenes? I got to imagine what it was like for those people in exile, crying all the same questions and, and, and the same shouts up to God that I think we do, right? God, where is God in this? How could a good and just and loving God allow something like this to continue? God, why? You've been there, right? You know the questions I mean. They had to be crying out the same. So many times I think that we find ourselves in exile in this world, wondering the exact same thing. We're crying out to a God of the Exodus. We're crying out to a God that we want to see, that we want to see come down with fire and power on a mountain, that we want to see display 10 plagues, that we want to see flex some muscle. But the story of Esther is that in exile, God more often than not is working behind the scenes. Not only that, God is working in Mordecai and Esther. What does he ask her? You're wavering, Esther. You're afraid. I get it. But there is a God who is mighty to save. And who knows? Maybe you have come to this position for such a time as these. It is the story of a God working through people behind the scenes. You know, so often I think we ask God things like, God, why didn't you just do something about that. And sometimes I think God answers, I sent you, didn't I? Welcome to life in exile. Welcome to the story of Esther. Following God in this world in exile will cost you. There's no getting around it. And it'll be filled with times of challenge and testing, times of struggle, times of standing at crossroads going, do I, do I take what God is calling me to or the path of least resistance? Because a life with Jesus entails risk. It entails risk. It entails stepping out of our comfort zones and taking leaps of faith. It takes being willing to risk and pay and suffer, holding on to the idea that there is a God involved in this world. And this God is alive and active, whether he remains seen or unseen. That God is at work and God is at work through people like you. And people like me. Do you want to see God at work in this world? Look around you right now. And look at the emissary sent from his throne to bring his goodness and his kingdom and his work near. That's the stakes of this game. It's not about feeling good. It's not about getting fed. It's not just about getting clean. It's about those times when we ask ourselves, but maybe you 
have come to your position for times such as these. Now, I'm not going to tell you how the story ends. Um, You got a Bible, read it. (laughs) Read it on your own and see what happens to Mordecai and Esther. And if you don't have one, find us at the Welcome Center. We'll give you one. Go to the info table and pick one up. Read the amazing story of how God works in exile. I think it'll knock you off your feet. So I'm going to invite you to get on them. And I I think we need to be reminded of something here today. Exile is tough. It's hard and it's scary. And if you find yourself in that place, I'm just here to tell you that's okay. Because let's not forget the promises God has made. the water's coming over our head. When we're getting swept away in the torrents of the rivers, when, when, when we find ourselves in the midst of the fire, let's not forget the words and promises that God has said. Make it your cry of faith with me. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do not be afraid for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me 